for downloading the sermon podcast for Hope City Church in Riverside, California. For more info about Hope City Church, visit www.hopecityriverside.org. Please turn with me to Jonah chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. If you are following along in the Bible that's under your chair, that is page 532. If you do not have a Bible of your own at home, that Bible is yours to keep. Uh, Please feel free. That's our gift to you. So please feel free to take that and read it a lot. (laughs) Jonah, chapter 3. We're just going to read four verses because that's all we're going to get through tonight. But let's read those four verses. It says this. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. And Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days in Nineveh shall be overthrown. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for your word. We know that your word is truth, your word is life, and it will challenge us and change us and shape us into the image of Jesus Christ if we will yield to your word, if we will have ears to hear. And so God, I pray that we would have ears to hear. I pray that we would have hearts that are receptive, that your word would land in good soil inside of us, that it would bear fruit and change lives. We've come to hear from you, and so Holy Spirit, teacher of the church, teach us tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. As I said uh, a little bit earlier, this, this text tonight has been really messing with me all week. And so just those four verses that we just read... Uh, In that text, it provides us with a strong word of encouragement and a strong word of warning. So that's where we're going tonight. We're going to start with just looking at this strong word of encouragement we find in the first couple verses and then a strong word about warning in in the last couple verses that we read. So let's read this again. Verses 1 and 2. Let me just tell you this. Let me just give you the good news right off the bat. Here's the word of encouragement that we get right off the bat. Our God is the God of second chances. Our God is the God of second chances. Let me show it to you in verses 1 and 2 again. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the what? The second time. Remember the first time it came to Jonah? What did Jonah do? He he completely disobeyed. He he bounced in the opposite direction of where God told him to go. So listen, he completely disobeyed God, rebelled against the Lord, the creator of heavens and the earth, completely rebelled. Goes through this whole ordeal, life-threatening ordeal, thinks he's going to die, the ship's going to break up, he's in the ocean, he's he's drowning, the fish, it's, it's not fun, okay? Even the fish was, though it was his rescue, it was not a pleasant experience, I'm sure, okay? ends up being puked back up onto dry land. He's now on dry land, a little bit messed up. Probably a little bit shell-shocked from the experience he's just been in right now. And the word of the Lord comes to him again. First of all, let's just acknowledge that it is absolutely the grace of God. Absolutely. the God could have said, Jonah, you disobeyed. I got you on dry land. I saved your life. I'm going to go tag somebody else who's going to obey me this time. Let's just acknowledge it was the absolute grace 
of God to come again to Jonah and say, now go do what I told you to do. You see the second chance there? Do you see the redemption in that? Like, I just, I feel, I know it's so simple. I know it's so, so simple, but I just feel like so many here probably need to hear this tonight, that you may have rebelled, you may have disobeyed, you may have completely run from God and turned your back on Him. God is not done with you. God is not done with you. He's not shocked or thrown by your rebellion or your backsliding. In Christ, if we will repent and trust in Him, our calling still stands. So what Jonah was called to do remained. His calling stood still even through his rebellion. It was there. It was still there. And God comes back to him and says, okay, you saw how like, disobedience sucks, right? Like that's pretty rough, right? So hey, check it out. My calling, the first word that I spoke to you is still the word I'm speaking to you now. Let me just remind you of what I've called you to do. Let me just remind you that that hasn't gone away. Let me just remind you that I have picked you, I have chosen you, I have tapped you on the shoulder and said, you're my man to go speak my word. That's huge, and I want that to be a tremendous encouragement to you tonight. We're no different than Jonah. We're no different than Jonah. We run and we rebel and we just completely go in the opposite direction, and God, in his infinite grace and mercy, when we return, when we make it back to dry land, when we've had our encounter, oh, messed up, wow, okay, rebellion really brought devastating consequences. Here I am. Okay, I'm messed up, a little worse for the wear, but I'm back on dry land. And God in his grace goes, okay, you ready? Now let's go. Let's go. He's not done with you. You may have convinced yourself that he's done with you. Others may have convinced you that he's done with you. But God is not done with you. He's not done with you. If you're breathing, you have a fresh opportunity right now to respond to the call of God in your life. You cannot change five minutes ago. It's the past. You can't change it. There's nothing you can do about it. I bet if Jonah could change and go back to step one and obey the first time after his experience, he'd probably do it. But he couldn't. He couldn't change it. What's amazing is God didn't go, you know what, you blew it, here we go. Like, I'm done with you forever. He didn't do that. He said, Jonah, my calling still stands. So I just want, I know I'm just repeating myself because I just feel like this needs to be driven home as many ways as possible until it gets deep into your spirit. That God is not done with you. There's no, there's no, you go, I just feel like I can hear some of you thinking right now, like, oh, you don't know what I've done. Oh, you don't know how jacked up I am. If you knew, then you wouldn't say that. Listen, I don't know, and you don't know how jacked up I am, okay? God knows how jacked up we all are. And he still says, you're my kid, and I'm calling you. You're my chosen one. Let's roll. Let's do this. Dust yourself off and move forward. So important. So important. Because what happens is we disqualify ourselves and we tap out. We quit on God. He doesn't quit on us. Yeah. Yeah. It's good. It's good. Let me show you something. Because Peter... So we had this with Peter, you know, the, the Apostle Peter. So Peter, who, who's like, I feel like I can relate to Peter because, like, I talk too much. And um, you read the Gospels and Peter's like that guy. He's like the guy that talks too much. He's like that guy that puts his foot in his mouth. He's that guy who makes these, like, passionate, bold proclamations. Like, Lord, even if everyone else denies you, I'll never deny you. 
Like, not me. Like, even if I have to die for you is what he says. Even if, I, even if they take the sword to me, I'll go down defending. I'll go down never denying you. And Jesus looks at him and he's like, Peter, you're the one that's going to deny me before the rooster crows three times. But here's what God said to him. He says, listen, he's, before that even happens, he says, Peter, Satan has asked for you because he wants to sift you like wheat. He wants to put you through hell. And he wants to, your faith is going to be tried. He says, but I've prayed for you. That's what Jesus says. I've prayed for you that your faith wouldn't fail. He didn't say, I prayed that you would never fall. I, didn't, I prayed that you would never sin. I prayed that you would never deny me. He says, you're going to deny me. You're going to screw up. You're going to blow it. I've prayed for you that your faith wouldn't fail. And when you've returned to me, strengthen your brothers. Did you catch that? Jesus says to Peter what Peter didn't know about himself. He's like, Peter's like, I will never do it. Peter, God's, Jesus is like, dude, you're more screwed up than you even know. You're going to deny me before the rooster crows three times. But check this out. I have prayed for you that though you have a moment of failure, that your faith would stay strong in the middle of all that. And you will return to me in repentance. And when you do, I'm going to use even your failure. You're going to use that and strengthen your brothers. So whatever excuse you have, you don't know how big my sin is. You don't know how much I've sinned. You don't know how recently I've sinned. It doesn't matter to me. It doesn't matter to me. Your sin is not more powerful than the blood of Jesus Christ. Like you have some super powerful sins that just are just going to overpower the blood of Christ. No, that's not, that's not a thing. That's not a thing. That doesn't exist. The blood of Christ covers and cleanses you from all sin. All sin. There's no sin too big, no number of sins too many, no sin too fresh and recent. That's it. There's nothing. I don't care if it was five minutes ago. There's nothing the Spirit of God cannot redeem. And so what we do is we disqualify ourselves because we've sinned. And we turn away and we continue in disobedience. When he says, you return to me, I'm going to use it all. There's nothing wasted in my hands. I'm going to use it all to strengthen others even. I'm going to turn your mess into ministry. Go speak my word. That's what he says to Jonah. Absolute, absolute redemption. I got all up in your face right there for a second. I'm sorry. It was just huge. It was just huge. Listen to me. It's not too late to start following God's direction. It's not too late because what the enemy does is tells us it's too late, so then we don't repent. But, but Jesus says, when you return to me, when you've returned, when you've repented, repentance is a thing, okay? We're going to talk about that. We're going to look at that. Next week, we're going to talk about repentance. But he says, when you've repented, when you've returned to me, I'm going to use you. Now look at verse 3. It says this. So Jonah did what? What did Jonah do with this second chance? Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Good boy. Jonah learned. You think Jonah learned a little bit? Maybe not everything he's, we're going to see this in the coming weeks too. Jonah continues to blow it in some ways. But Jonah learned at least a little something through his rebellion. Jonah learned, God speaks, I obey. Otherwise things get gnarly. Okay? And it may be a cost of obeying God, but the cost of disobedience is greater. Okay? I, I, I've heard this said, the pain of discipline is not as great as the pain of disobedience. So it is a discipline to follow and obey Jesus. It is discipline. It is painful. It is hard. It does cost us. Okay? There's a, there's a, there's a pain to obedience. Okay? 
There's a, there's a pain to discipline. But the pain of discipline can't be compared to the pain of disobedience. And so we try to avoid the pain of discipline and we run into the pain of disobedience. And it just breaks us. Mercilessly breaks us. And so what Jonah learned at least a little bit was, okay, the pain of discipline, I don't want to go. He still doesn't want to go to Nineveh. But he does it. He did the hard thing. Right? Because he knew the pain of disobedience was greater. Same is true for us. So Jonah makes good on his second chance. He, he'd learned from his experience with the storm and with the fish. So I want to say a couple things. We're talking about second chances. Let me just, God does absolutely give second chances. In fact, God is not just a God of second chances. He's a God of third and fourth and fifth and infinity chances, I believe. So long as we're breathing, okay? So long as we're breathing, because if I just got two chances, I'd be in trouble, okay? Um, but it's important to note a couple things here. Though God is a God of second chances, let me just note two things. Number one, we need to know that there are not infinite second chances. What I mean by that is this. At some point, we will run out of time in our lives. We have no idea when we're going to take our last breath. Okay? And we're going to run out of, at some point, opportunities to be obedient. We're going to run out of opportunities to repent. So the time to obey is now. Delayed obedience, check this out. This is so true, but I know you've all heard this before, but I'm going to just say it again. Delayed obedience is disobedience. Every parent knows that. Go clean your room. Five minutes later, go clean your room. I'm going to do it. No, that's not, that, it's, that's disobedience. Well, I planned on doing it. No, you were disobedient because you didn't do it when I asked you. Delayed obedience. Even if you're planning on obeying, delaying your obedience is disobedience. So the time to obey is now. Delayed obedience is disobedience. And listen, later often becomes never. So what we do is we trick ourselves into thinking, oh, because God gives me all these second chances, I'll take that second chance later. And you know what happens is later often becomes never. And in the middle of all that time, while we're hardening our heart to the voice of the Holy Spirit who's calling us to repent, we are, our consciences are just getting seared. And we, and we stop being as sensitive to the voice of the Holy Spirit. As we're running away into disobedience, we just stop being sensitive to the conviction and drawing of the Holy Spirit to repent. Because we think there's infinite second chances. And the reality is there are not. We don't know when our time is. The time to obey, the time to repent is now. Is now. Second thing I want to tell you about second chances. That Jesus doesn't just offer us a second chance. He offers us a substitute. Let me explain that. As I said already, if we had a million second chances, we'd blow them all. Raise your hand if you'd blow a million second chances. Okay? It's all of us. We think we'd do good. We think, just give me one more chance. We'd screw it up. We'd blow it. Jesus came and lived a perfect, sinless life, was obedient despite our imperfection and disobedience. Jesus came and lived the life that we couldn't live, died the death that we couldn't die to give us his life in return, to give us his righteousness. So our own attempts at being righteous, that is our own attempts to be in right standing with God, all the little things we do that think that makes us right with God, well, if I give enough, if I serve enough, if I pray enough, if I read enough, then I'm earning enough brownie points with God, then my good 
outtips the bad on the scale, and then I've got like enough merit to earn my salvation. Scripture says all of our attempts to do that, they're like filthy rags. So, so the best human being has a righteousness on their own that is like filthy rags. That's all of us. So my attempts, your attempts to be in right standing with God on our own will always fail and fall short. There you go. That sounds like bad news. It's actually, it's, it's, it's the first part is bad news so we can get to the good news. The good news is Christ came and lived the sinless life that we didn't, that we don't. It says he became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. So he didn't just come to offer us endless second chances that we're going to keep blowing. He came to offer us redemption through substitution. That is, he took our place. He took the death that we deserve. He paid the price that we owed, that we couldn't pay. He took our place on the cross and offers us in exchange his righteousness. He takes our sin and gives us his righteousness. It's not just a second chance, it's a substitute. It's huge. That knowledge, okay, the fact that if I'm in Christ, I stand on his righteousness and not on my own, that's better than a second chance, okay? And it actually should empower me to make the most of my second chances. Does that make sense? Because now I'm not living my second chance to try to earn it again. Oh, God wiped the slate clean. I get a second chance to earn it. It's never about earning it. He's saying, I wiped the slate clean. I did it for you. We go, I'm completely free in you. I'm completely forgiven you. There's all that grace and mercy for me. Like the, the, the slate is clean. He goes, yes, my love for you. Your acceptance of me. You repenting and trusting in me. I give you my righteousness. That is who you are. You are a new creation. Now out of gratitude I go, oh God, I'm going to make the most of this. I'm going to make the most of this. Help me to live for you out of gratitude and not out of trying to earn it. It's so huge that we get that. So huge. So I said, this text provides us with a strong word of encouragement and a strong word of warning. So now we turn to the word of warning. Bum, bum, bum. Everybody just got a little serious. Look at verse... 3 and 4. Let me read it again. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days journey in breadth. Uh, we learn later in the scriptures it was about one-third the size of Riverside. So, and population. About a hundred-something thousand people we're going to see. Riverside's about 314,000 people. So Riverside's about three times larger than the great city Nineveh. That's what it says. Just an interesting little side fact. Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and here's what he called out to all the people. Now imagine you're Jonah. Imagine you're walking through the city. You've walked a day into this three-day journey of a city, and you just start to cry out for the, the day. Everybody you pass. You're crying out so everybody can hear you. In 40 days, Nineveh will be overthrown. Who wants that assignment? In 40 days, this city is going to be overthrown. That's a, we don't, nobody wants that message. Nobody wants that message. We all want the message where it's like, hey, in about 20 minutes, lollipops and rainbows for everybody. 
Lollipops and rainbows from God, from heaven. He just wants to, just wants to kiss you. He says in 40 days, because your sin has come up before God, in 40 days, this city is going to be overthrown. That's a heavy message. That is an intense and difficult message that Jonah preached to Nineveh. It is not always easy to talk about sin and the destruction that it causes. But we must be willing to speak the truth in love to one another. Love should always be our motive. And if it's not, I, I think we should probably keep our mouths shut. But there's this idea, I think, there's this terribly wicked idea that is so pervasive in our culture right now that we should never call out sin. That we should never warn or admonish people to turn from their sin, otherwise we're being self-righteous, critical, and judgmental. Isn't that the accusation? As soon as you call out sin, you are self-righteous. You think you're holier than thou. You're critical. You're judgmental. If you call out sin, then man, you are, oh, who are you? You're holier than thou? You're up here and I'm down here? It's automatically assumed. People will, in fact, blast you and call you the nastiest things. As soon as you say, hey, I think that's a sin, let's, let's deal with that. This idea that we should never call out sin or never warn people, never speak like Jonah did, this word of warning to people is absolutely unbiblical. Scripture repeatedly shows us how important it is to speak words of warning, loving, gracious words of warning to one another and to the world. Let me give you just a few examples. Ezekiel chapter 33, verses 1 through 11. This is a lengthy text, but stay with me, because this in the last couple weeks, in my devotion time, these texts have come up, and I go, it's no accident this stuff has come up. It's no accident, this, just the state of our culture. And I actually got a little bit like, oh, do I go? Because I just know, man, as soon as I start preaching something like this, I'm so, it's so easy to be labeled as critical and judgmental. And I've, and I've brought my heart before God a hundred million times in the last, again, okay, that's a slight exaggeration. I've brought my heart before God a lot of times in the last few weeks. Saying, God, make sure my heart is pure in speaking. Make sure my motives are pure. Make sure I'm walking in love. And I believe God wants me to share this. Ezekiel chapter 33, verses 1 through 11. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, speak to your people and say to them, if I bring the sword upon the land and the people of the land take a man from among them and make him their watchman, stay with me, and if he sees the sword coming upon the land and he blows the trumpet and warns the people, then if anyone who hears the sound of the trumpet does not take warning and the sword comes and takes him away, his blood is on his own head. He heard the sound of the trumpet and didn't heed the warning, so his blood's on his own head. But if he had taken warning, he would have saved his life. But if the watchman sees the sword coming and doesn't warn people, doesn't blow the trumpet so that the people are not warned, and the sword comes and takes any one of them, that person is taken away in his iniquity, in his sin, but his blood I will require at the watchman's hand. So you, son of man, I have made you a watchman, an overseer for the house of Israel. Whenever you hear a word from my mouth, you shall give them the people warning from me. 
If I say to the wicked, O wicked one, you shall surely die, and you do not speak to warn the wicked to turn from his way, that wicked person shall die in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at your hand. But if you warn the wicked to turn from his way, and he doesn't turn from his way, that person will die in his iniquity, but you will have delivered your soul. And you, son of man, say to the house of Israel, thus you have said, surely our transgressions and our sins are upon us, and we rot away because of them. How then can we live? So they, they get it. Okay, you've warned them. Now they go, oh, our transgressions are upon us. How can we live? Say to them then, when they're in that spot, as, as I live, declares the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back. Turn back from your evil ways, for why will you die? Oh, house of Israel. Do you see what just happened? He said, Ezekiel, I've set you up as a watchman for my people. And when you see destruction coming upon them, you blow the trumpet and warn them. And if you don't warn them, I'm gonna, their blood is on your hands. If you warn them and they, and they don't respond, okay, their blood is on their own head. If they do respond in repentance and go, what shall we do? My sin is before me. He says, tell them this. I have no pleasure in your destruction. I have pleasure in your repentance, so turn to me. We see a similar passage in chapter 3. I'm not going to take you there, but here's the deal. God had set Ezekiel as a watchman, as an overseer for the people of Israel. Verse 7, he says, you shall give them warning from me. Sometimes a word of warning for people is from God. Even if those people go, oh, you're judgmental, you're critical, you're, you're self-righteous. You're Sometimes it's absolutely you know that God is calling you to warn somebody. I have been graciously warned about paths that I was walking down that were destructive. Sometimes I heeded that warning, and sometimes I ignored that warning. Just ask my mom. Verses 8 and 9, he says, If you warn the wicked, warn the wicked to turn from his way. Verse 11 says, God has no pleasure in our destruction. No pleasure in the destruction of any person. God has no pleasure in that. He has pleasure in repentance. He has pleasure in people turning to him and finding the greatest good for all of eternity. So, here's another passage. If you want to get ahead of me, we're going to read it in just a second, but we're going to be in the book of Jeremiah for the next couple passages if you want to flip there. In this other passage, Israel, the people of Israel, God's people, had walked away from the Lord in disobedience and in sin. And they were headed for absolute destruction. Instead of warning the people, the prophets and priests went out of their way to assure the people that they were just fine and that all was well between them and God. Look at what God said to Jeremiah about these priests and prophets. Jeremiah chapter 8, verse 11. Talking about these priests and prophets, God says, They have healed the wound of my people lightly, crying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. The New International Version says, they dressed the wound, of, I want you to picture this, they dressed the wound of my people as though it were not serious. The New Living Translation says, they offer superficial treatments for my people's mortal wound. They give assurances of peace to them when there is no peace. The message Bible says this, prophets and priests and everyone in between twist words and doctor the truth. 
My dear daughter, my people are broken and shattered, and yet they, these false prophets and priests, they're just putting on band-aids saying, oh, it's not so bad, you'll be just fine. But things are not just fine. Continues in chapter 14. Jeremiah 14, verses 10 through 14 says this. Thus says the Lord concerning this people, they have loved to wander into sin. They've not restrained their feet, therefore the Lord does not accept them. Now he will remember their iniquity and punish their sins. He says, destruction's coming. The Lord says to me, don't, don't pray for the welfare of this people. Though they fast, I won't hear their cry. Though they offer burnt offering and grain offering, I will not accept them, but I'll consume them by the sword, by famine, and by pestilence. And then I said, but Lord, behold, the prophets are saying to them, you will not see the sword, and you will not have famine, but I will give you assured peace in this place. And here's what the Lord said to me, Jeremiah says. The prophets are prophesying lies in my name. They're prophesying to you a lying vision, worthless divination, and the deceit of their own minds. So here's what's happening. The people had wandered into sin. It's going to lead to destruction. And the prophets and priests are going, you know, it's, you guys are good with God. God just, hey, you're good how you are. Just, God just wants to pat you on the butt and tell you you're cool like that. He doesn't want to change anything about you. You're not headed for destruction. Don't worry about it. I, I give you an assurance of peace. You're at peace with God. God says there is no peace. There's no peace. Why are they prophesying? Says, That's a lying vision. You're speaking. He says they're speaking out of the deceit of their own minds. They refused to warn the people of the deadly consequences of their sin. And instead, they just assured the people that everything was okay. And Scripture says that was like putting a Band-Aid on a mortal wound. That was like, that was like putting a Band-Aid on cancer and going, you're going to be good. Let me, let me just, let's just flesh this out. I know it's heavy, okay? I get it. I get it. I've been praying for two weeks about this one. Like, how do I, how do I, this, it's heavy and I think it needs to be heavy. Okay? I think it needs to, I think it needs to, because it's, this is absolutely confronting our Western American, like, just roses and daisies idea of God. No destruction, no destruction, I live how I want. I'm free in Christ. There's no consequences for sin. It's rubbish. It's rubbish. It is unbiblical. If a doc, if you went to the doctor, and he took a brain scan and he looks at that brain scan and he sees a large, aggressive, cancerous tumor. And he comes back to you and he says, you're fine. Let me ask you, is that a good doctor? No. Is that a loving doctor? No. No. That's what these prophets were doing. Says they were, he says, you're looking at my people's mortal wound and you're going, oh, you're good. Imagine somebody hit by a car out here and they're, gonna, they're bleeding, they're going to die, like it's bad. And instead of getting them the care and going, yeah, this is serious, let's get some 911, let's get some attention to them, let's deal with it so they can live. It's going to be brutal. So looking at them and going, hey, you're going to be good, man, and walking away. That's what's happening. Right. That's what these prophets were doing. And let me tell you, that's what so many are doing today. I mean, we don't have to, you don't have to like this message, okay? That's what so many are doing today. So many. In the name of love. In the name of grace. 
It's fake grace that's being preached. It's a fake love that's being preached. I'm telling you right now. It is a man-centered gospel, not a God-centered gospel we are hearing preached. And it's not loving. Because even though the people were headed full steam toward destruction, the prophets didn't warn them. Instead, they lied. And God said this about the false prophets. He said they are frauds. They practice deceit by twisting words and doctoring truth. He says they're speaking lying visions, worthless divinations, and the deceit of their own minds. Listen, people that are preaching false gospels don't believe they're preaching false gospels. They're deceived themselves the deceit of their own minds. They probably thought, these priests probably thought they were being loving by tickling people's ears and telling them what they wanted to hear. But it's not loving. It's not loving to do that. In fact, I believe that perhaps one of the most passively wicked and unloving things you can do when you see someone lumbering blindly towards destruction is to remain silent. Or to give them somehow a false assurance of peace and safety. Again, if one of you walked out here and started crossing the street and you're talking to me while you're doing it, and I see a bus coming down, and, and I don't say something, I don't warn you, I must hate you. I must hate you. It's not loving to go, you're going to be good when destruction's coming. Imagine. For those of you who have kids, imagine your kids playing in the backyard and they're running this way and over here you see a little cobra in the grass. Imagine staying silent in that scenario and calling it love. Or imagine, worse yet, looking at your kids and going, the yard is safe. Play away. There's nothing loving about that. That's a fake love. What would you do if that was your kids? Would you, would you stay silent? Would you encourage them to keep playing? Of course not. Why? You would warn them because you love them. Because the warning is motivated by love. Love warns. Godly love warns. You might argue, wait, that's just Old Testament. You're just taking me into a couple Old Testament passages and that doesn't really apply. What about the New Testament? I'm glad you asked. Let's go there. Let's go quick. Acts chapter 20, verses 26 through 32. <clears throat> this is Paul speaking to a group of elders who are leading the churches in Ephesus, okay? And this is what Paul, he's, it's a very, Acts 20, it's this powerful emotional meeting where he's gathered all of them to himself. He says, you're probably not going to see me again before I die. And I want to speak some last words of, of exhortation to you. Okay? And so this is part of it. And he says this. Therefore I testify to you this day. This is Acts 20, 26-32. Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all of you because I didn't shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. He says, your blood is not on my hands because I declared the whole counsel of God's word to you. The good, the bad, the difficult, the ugly. I, I was, even if it was going to upset you, I told you all of the word of God. That's what he says. And because I was honest and told you all the word of God, your blood's not on my hands. Pay careful attention to yourselves 
and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, watchmen, to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, listen to this. He said, I'm going to leave, guys, but I know in the church, here's what's going to happen. Fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And listen to this. And from among your own selves, men will rise up speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish. That word means to warn everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance amongst all those who are sanctified. That word admonish means to warn, to caution, to reprove. Paul said, he didn't just say I warned you. He says, I haven't stopped warning you day and night with tears for three years. That here's what's going to happen when I leave. Wolves are going to come in and they're going to decimate the flock. They're not going to care for you. They're going to pretend to care. They're going to come in amongst you, dressed in sheep's clothing, and they're going to come in and they're going to decimate the flock. And he goes, and men will rise up from among you. What does that mean? Listen, false prophets don't announce themselves as false prophets. They don't show up and go, hey, I'm about to teach you a lie right now, so shut it down. They come in and they go, I swear I'm a Christian. I swear I love Jesus. I swear I got a couple Bible verses to back up what I'm saying. I swear if you take this and you just twist it a little bit, I swear if you just look at some kind of nuance in the original language, there's a, a shade of a word that might mean this, and they twist it. He says they're going to speak twisted things, twi perversions of the truth. They don't outright deny the truth. They just twist it. They just play, they get careful with it. They get tricky and shady with definitions and meanings. He says, I didn't cease to warn you about that. Night and day for three years, passionately with tears. Don't let it happen to you, he said. I'm so, I know I'm so intense about this, but I, it's because I read this and I feel like I'm reading today's newspaper. I, I have seen lives devastated by false gospels. I've seen people let go of their faith in Jesus because of false gospels. You go, how do you know you're not the deceived one? And I go, that's a great Great question. How do I know? I've prayed that myself. God, if I'm the deceived one, if I'm wrong, if I'm an error, please correct me. Amen. If I'm an error, God, love me enough to rip the scales off my eyes and correct me. How can I know, God? How can I know that what I'm speaking is the truth? How can I know that my doctrine is sound? Luckily, Scripture tells us. Jesus prayed in John 17. He says, Father, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. Your word it's true. Second Timothy, Paul writes to Timothy again and he says this, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. This is not the thoughts of man. This is the inspiration of God. He says all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is useful for doctrine. How can I know that what I'm speaking is the truth? How can I know that my doctrine is pure? Does it come? Is it rooted in the word of the living God? And if I've got to get tricky with the word of God, danger. Danger. Not peace.
so I feel, I believe that wolves are having a heyday with the church of God. I believe that many have risen up from amongst us claiming to be Christians, holding a Bible, saying, hey, I'm just like you. It's just different interpretations. It's very clear from the scriptures that some interpretations are in fact false. False. Not true. Of course we come to this text humbly. I don't know everything. I don't know half of everything. My only hope of knowing truth is, God, what do you say? And if I have set up my own intellect as the judge of God's word, danger. Danger. Let me, let me go fast. I'm going to go fast. I know we're done. I know we're way done. Over time, probably. Let me just read these fast. Just take notes, okay? Because I don't want you to miss any of these. Go home and study these, please. Okay? Check up on me. I've taught stuff that I disagree with later, so please. Be like the Bereans. Be like the Bereans. Receive the word openly, but go home and diligently, daily, search the scriptures to see if what you're taught is true. Colossians chapter 1, verse 27 through 29. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ in you is the hope of glory. And Him we proclaim, warning everyone. It's New Testament. We proclaim Christ and warn everyone. That's what He says. And teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. He says, we proclaim Christ and we warn them. When, when, when the Pharisees were coming to get baptized, John the Baptist said what? Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Hey, we got to warn. I need to be warned. I need you to love me enough to warn me when I wander off into error. We need it. Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 through 21. But I say to you, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger. Listen, we're all getting pegged in this list somewhere, okay? Rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like this. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. He's, man, we warn because we want people to inherit the kingdom of God. Because we want to inherit the kingdom of God. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. Finally then, brothers. 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 through 8. If you need to know these notes afterwards, come, come see me. I'm just going to roll through this. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus Christ. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you be sanctified is God's will. That you abstain from sexual immorality. That each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in passion of lust like the Gentiles who don't know God. That no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter. 
because the Lord is avenger in all these things. As we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us to impurity, but in a holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. When God gives you a word of warning and you speak it, it's not your job to make people respond to it. It's our job to be obedient and speak it. And if they reject it, they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting God who told you to speak. True. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 13 through 15. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person. Have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but what? Warn him as a brother. Titus chapter 3. Verses 9 through 11. I'm giving you a bunch of New Testament just so you can't say you, I, I cherry pick something out of the Old Testament. Titus chapter 3, verses 9 through 11. Avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, and dissensions and quarrels about the law. Some people just love to debate everything. It's just debate. It's just debate. It says avoid that. Just avoid controversies and, gee, and dissensions and quarrels about the law and the scripture, for they're unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. <clears throat> the scripture, Old and New Testament, reveals a people of God, reveals a church that consistently warns and admonishes one another in love. In love. And warns the world of the judgment to come. In love in love. So let me give you two things. I know, I know we're way over. I want to give you two things. How do we apply this? How, it's a heavy word. So how do we apply this? Number one is this. We must heed godly warning. Yeah. We must heed godly warning. That is every one of us. So some of you have been like, ah, uh, feeling maybe kind of heavy towards yourself. And some of you may have been a little too excited in this message going, oh, I get to go be God's policeman to everybody. Oh, I get to go, oh, I get to go tell everybody else how they're blowing it. I get to warn everybody else. Listen, let judgment begin in my house. Let judgment begin in my heart. Okay? We must heed godly warning. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 25 says this. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they didn't escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, talking about the Old Testament saints, how much less will we escape? We go, oh, the New Testament, it's a lot friendly. There's no warning. It's like, no, no. If they didn't escape, how much less will we escape if we reject him who warns us from heaven? So we need to heed ourselves. Take personal heed to the warnings of God. Take per don't, don't blow through the red lights when the Holy Spirit gives them to you. When you're reading the scriptures and you're confronted or challenged, don't explain it away. Go, God, I'm in sin and I'm sorry. Let me heed your warning. Let me return to you. Because I know the pain of discipline will be, will be far less than the pain of disobedience. Jeremiah chapter 6, verse 10. God speaking, he says, To whom shall I speak and give warning that they may hear? Who's going to hear my warning, he says? Who's going to hear? I can warn them, but who's going to hear? Behold, their ears are uncircumcised. They can't listen. Behold, the word of the Lord to them is like an object of scorn. They take no pleasure in it. He says, who am I going to warn that they're going to listen? They, they, they just laugh at my word. 
We, let's take pleasure in the Word of God. It will warn us. Psalm 19, verses 7 through 11. That's just a little, it says, by them, your, it says, by them, by them, your scriptures, by your word, by your commands, by your testimony, by your laws. It says, by them, your servant is warned. Let's heed the gracious, loving warning of the Spirit of God and of the Word of God. He just longs for us to come to repentance. Has no pleasure in our destruction. And number two, so number one, we must heed godly warning. But number two, we absolutely must speak godly warning. James chapter 5, verses 19 to 20. This is our last verse. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. Do you see the affection in that? Do you see the tender love of warning and drawing people back? I thank God for every person who threw a lump in their throat and shaking legs and a quivering lip spoke a word of warning to me when I was headed for destruction. I praise God for their obedience. I praise God that they loved me enough to say the hard thing. And so we must love people enough to warn them of destruction. I have no verses for these. Three principles if you feel like God is leading you to give somebody a word of warning. Three things. If you're going to speak a word of warning to somebody, it better be in humility. It needs to be in humility. What I mean is you better be humble about yourself. If you feel like you're up here speaking to somebody who's down here, keep your mouth closed. You're going to do more damage than good. Scripture says, let he who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. He says you're just as capable of any sin as anybody else's. Their sins aren't worse than yours. You're no better than them. So don't be self-righteous. Listen, sometimes people say we're self-righteous not because we're just giving a word of warning, but because we're actually self-righteous. Some people say we're critical and judgmental because we're critical and judgmental. So let's not be that. So speak in humility. Number two, speak in love. Truth and love go hand in hand all throughout the scriptures. We can't reject truth and call it love. And we can't pretend to love people without speaking the truth. They go hand in hand. So speak in humility, speak in love. And, and, and the third principle I would say, if you feel like God's calling you to speak a word of warning, is speak for the good benefit and building up of the other person. There's a scripture where Paul, I think it's Paul, somebody writes. He says, listen, our fathers disciplined us for their own pleasure. He says, but God corrects us for our own good. Maybe it's the book of Hebrews. We don't know who the author is. Right? Sometimes we correct people because we get some kind of sick pleasure out of it. If you have anything in your heart that's just going to like really be excited about speaking a word of correction or warning to somebody, don't do it. Your motives are off. If you get any kind of juice or excitement out of, you know what, I'm going to go tell them. Man, no, no, no. This is God, when God speaks a word of correction, when God disciplines, he does it for our benefit. He does it for our good. 
We're not called to be everybody's spiritual police. We're called to examine our own hearts and when God calls us to, to lovingly and humility for the benefit of others, speak words of warning so that we can see people turn back to Christ and experience the joy of eternal life. And so I know we got far off of our text tonight in the point that the text was making. I, I don't believe uh, that Jonah was probably purely motivated by love. But in obedience to God, the one thing we can commend Jonah for is that in obedience to God, he went into a city and spoke a difficult word of warning to people who were headed for destruction. How did they respond? That's what we're going to look at next week. Let's pray. Father God, I, I pray that you would burn your word into our hearts. That you would etch your word into our hearts. You would in love and grace drive your word into our hearts. God, help us to examine ourselves and to God, humble ourselves before you. To humble ourselves. You don't submit to our lives. We submit our lives to you. And God, we all need correction. And we all have habits and things and sins and struggles and internal things that we wrestle with that need to be surrendered to you. And so God, I pray that by your grace, you give us the power to heed your gracious words of warning. Make us a humble and contrite people who tremble at your word. And Lord, when you call us to in love and in humility and for their benefit, speak a word of warning to others, I pray that, that you would grace our lips, that you would give us every word and help us to have your beating, burning heart for people so that we may represent you well and not slander your name by being critical and unloving, self-righteous and judgmental, Lord. But that in love, we would speak when you call us to speak. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.